Welcome to the Redneck Dentist Podcast. I am Doc Mike, host of the podcast. A series of Forrest Gump-like events have brought me to where I am, a small-town country dentist. My experiences in country living, country freedom, country dentistry, and my reactions to pertinent current events will help you live a life of more freedom and less worry. Thank you for choosing the Redneck Dentist Podcast. So let's get to today's freedom-inspiring episode. All right, now I do. Gee, many Christmas. Man, I'll tell you, this uh, time change thing, uh, you know, I thought it was going to be reset after last weekend, but I think because during the time change weekend, I had the whole computer issue, and then last weekend, we did the whole garden thing, expanding the garden. I'm still trying to catch up, and plus, I got to tell you, I actually, <laughs> I guess, you know, you you can't. It's hard to admit that you're just getting older, that that's just all there is to it. Because after the weekend, uh, I actually took Monday off and uh, to recover because it was difficult, man. I was sore. I was beat up. It was like hard to stand and my hands were, my arms were worn out uh, in case you didn't catch all that this weekend I pulled T-posts, pulled fence down, moved, uh, tilled the entire garden. We expanded it to about five times the size. And then, um, you know, put T-posts and fence back up to keep the deer out. But anyway, we have enough. uh, Anyway, the point is, I was beat. And Monday, I took the day off to kind of recover. And I'm still kind of looking forward to this weekend where I, Hope I don't do too much and uh, finish physically recovering from all the stuff I did this weekend. Anyway, uh, this is Doc Mike, and I am live on Real Liberty Media every Wednesday and Sunday, no, Wednesday and Saturday nights at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. You can catch me there. You can join the conversation in our chat room on IRC. Or just go to reallibertymedia.com and hook up with the chat room there, and people will guide you into the IRC channel. Um, anyway, it's a great place to hang out, really. The people just have, you know, fun things to say, some great links, great information. Like, people in the Real Liberty Media chat room have been right about far more things in the last two years than mainstream media has been right about, that's for sure. I was just looking at a list. Hang on, I got I have to get a drink. One sec. All right, just about back here. One, one sec. You know, allergies. Out here in Oregon, we have, you know, 60-degree weather, maybe almost 70 on a couple days, and the Everything's blooming. All the pollens are out, blasting away. So, you know, the voice goes quickly these days, especially at the end of the day. Anyway, I was looking at a list of all the stuff that people, I guess, I don't know, people that I hang out with or associate with or listen to. People on the Real Liberty Media chat, uh, uh, places that they recommend you go look for information. And I was looking at just a short list I compiled just before coming on the air about all the stuff that they have been right about or led, led me and others to information so that you could kind of check out the truth. and. Um, You know, some of those things were like, you know, I mean, Fauci, for one thing. I mean, he's lied about so many things. And along the way, if you, you know, kind of listened to the right people, hung out in some of the chat rooms or, you know, number one, if you ignored all of the mainstream media sources and all of the social media sources that would censor everything, look at all the stuff that the the, uh, 
tech companies censored in the last two years that are now coming to fruition, that are that the truth is actually coming out about these things. You know, um, vaccine injuries. Uh, you're going to see more and more uh, reports of vaccine injuries because the data has been there all along. It's just that nobody would release the data. They wouldn't actually talk about the real data, like the real science that was going on. All of that was hushed up and censored. You know, the effectiveness of the vaccine from day one, everybody knew. I mean, people people who have a brain and actually care enough to, to research this information knew that this vaccine couldn't possibly be have been tested to be effective. There just wasn't enough time. And I'm not a Trump hater, but just remember, this all started under Trump, okay? And I have some things to say about Trump, too. That's just, people are kind of on this bandwagon, like, you know, you know, there's these polls. If Trump runs for president, are you going to vote for him? You know, and everybody's kind of high on, not everybody, but there's this big movement to get Trump back in the White House. I got news for you. Trump is never getting back in the White House. You have to remember, he was hated for the entire four years of his administration because he's not a politician. He's not one of them. So they're going to do everything in their power. I mean, recently, this week, you heard already probably, about seven hours of missing phone records. And another, you know, another, uh, I, I don't even know what to call him, another political activist has come out and said, oh, well, yeah, I do remember something about burner phones. Oh, really? You remember something about burner phones? Let's be a little more specific about that. Like, what exactly do you remember about burner phones? And are you implying that? Trump went and bought burner phones so he could, you know, make some phone calls for the seven hours that they can't find any phone records on Trump on January 6th or right around that time, day before, day after, I don't know. But it's a story right now because they have to prevent him from getting into office again because he is not one of them. He probably was pretty you know, trying to be pretty accurate about when he was talking, when he ran for president the first time during his campaign, he talked a lot about draining the swamp. And he's probably, if he gets back in, there's probably going to be some draining going on. It looks like, you know, if nothing else, he's suing Hillary Clinton and several others because of their, well, because of their lies that everybody said, you know, couldn't possibly be true that, you know, Clinton, you know, Hillary couldn't be involved in all of the stuff that now is coming out that she was involved in. They can't possibly let Trump back in office. So I don't know what all the excitement is about Trump. I think there's a lot better people if you're still voting, you know, thinking that the world is going to change. Um, well, good luck to you, but uh, I think there's better people than Trump, and I just don't. I just don't see how. <laughs> you know, Trump's been out of office for at least 15 months now, right? Is that right, January, February, March? Yeah, something like that. Well, let's say 14 to be safe, and so nobody calls me a liar. And um, they haven't stopped attack attacking him yet. I mean, every single week. There's something more. Even though Hunter Biden's laptop has now been also proven to be real and to be a security issue for the current president of the United States being in office, that there's some information on that laptop that apparently is pretty incriminating. But is anybody going to go after Biden? No, they're focusing on Trump. That's the whole idea is they have to keep nailing Trump, you know, and keep finding things. You know, that's why they tried to impeach him when he wasn't even in office is because they wanted to impeach him to prevent him from becoming president again. Although I don't even know if that's a law, really. But, um, yeah, 
I wouldn't hold my breath if I were you thinking that everything's going to be great and Trump's going to get back in office in a few years or even a few months, I've heard some people saying. Um, yeah, and the vaccine effect effectiveness, you know, we, uh, you know, people who, you know, I've been guided to, to, to listen to people who seem like they have their finger on the pulse of the information, the real information, the real data, you know, the real science, you know, they knew that this vaccine that the government called a vaccine couldn't possibly be effective. And as time went on, even up to today, they are, they have found out that the vaccine doesn't do anything that a vaccine is supposed to do. It doesn't do it effectively, that's for damn sure. Although you saw Biden today or heard about Biden, or maybe you didn't, he's, he got his fourth shot, which you know that was probably a placebo because uh, they don't, I don't think they want to kill him. And, um, and, uh, you know, it's just for show anyway. Hey, by the way, I was thinking, so remember earlier this week when he was making his speech, he was, he was over, he was overseas and he was making a speech. And at the end, he said, this man cannot remain in power. And everybody assumed that he was talking about Putin because he had just finished his tirade. I actually had this thought. What if the person who wrote that speech at the very bottom wrote, this man cannot remain in power, and they were actually talking about Biden. <laughs> and then Biden read that statement because he sure seemed confused about that later when uh, people were drilling him on whether or not he said that, you know, Putin needed to be re removed from power. And uh, I, I just thought it was pretty damn funny that, you know, that possibly could have been like a little faux pas that Biden was reading the message that the writer wrote and the writer was writing that message to himself like, oh, God, this Biden cannot remain in office. And then Biden reads it, this man cannot remain in office. And it could have been, it could have been pretty damn funny. I mean, I think it was pretty damn funny. Okay, some other things that... Uh, that have been proven out in the last two years that people were censored for, that people lost their Facebook accounts, their Instagram, their YouTube, their whatever social media accounts. They were banned from them. Hell, a lot of us had to go looking for other places to hang out. If you wanted to do podcasts, if you wanted to do streams, if you want to share information, that's one thing that I think is beautiful about IRC. There's nobody in there censoring anybody. There's nobody in there censoring, um, which sometimes kind of sucks because people, you know, no matter where you go, I, I hang out in a few chat rooms, very few. But but I would say every single one of them has at least one a-hole in it, you know, that comes by and just just like wants to start trouble, you know, and... For whatever reason, they want to say really nasty stuff about certain people in that chat room. And, and it's kind of weird because they don't even really know the person at all. They just know what that person has typed in the little chat window. And I guess it gives them, you know, some kind of power or some kind of feel good to, uh, you know, go after people, like personally go after people when those people are just hanging out in the chat room trying to, you know, educate and inform themselves and pass on information and kind of have a good time. But I'm I'm not kidding. Every chat room, so I'm telling you now, if you come to reallibertymedia.com, yeah, there's going to be people in there that are contrary, and sometimes they're really nasty. But for the most part, they're not. Like, for the most part, they're just sharing information and hanging out, having a good time. But my point is, you know, a lot of people uh, lost their social media accounts and had to go find somewhere else to hang because, you know, there was a monopoly on these social media accounts. And all of them, all of the big tech companies that run those social media accounts were censoring information because they strictly do not believe in free speech. They only believe in, like, single-sided ideas. 
which is really dangerous because, you know, you see people today, you know, you talk to some people who are only hooked up to those social media platforms, they have very little knowledge of what really is going on in the world, which can be very dangerous because right now, if you don't believe, if you don't understand that inflation has hit us and that things are becoming are going to become much more expensive in the next year, and that some of the things that you take for granted today, you're not going to be able to purchase next, you know, in the next year. You know, there's going to be severe shortages of different uh, supplies that you just count on. You just think, oh, this is, uh, yeah, I'll just go to the store and pick this up. And guess what? There's not always going to, there's going to be some things disappearing from store shelves. And actually, some of the people I know who actually shop, you know, I don't really do shopping. <laughs> you know, I have family members that go shopping. I go shopping, you know, if I'm asked to go or if I'm in town doing something and, uh, you know, my wife wants me to pick something up or my daughter or whatever. Yeah, I'll go, I'll go pick stuff up, but I don't do them. I don't do the main grocery shopping. So, you know, I don't know if. I wouldn't be able to tell you if this is true or not. <laughs> That's right. I do some of the physical labor. Um, but some of the people that I work with, some of the people in my office were telling me that they already noticed that some aisles of the store, they have taken the supplies that they do have and spread them out further to make it look like the shelves aren't as bare as they are. In other words, that in other words, where there's some items missing, they took items that they have uh, more of and they spread them out into those spaces. So um, you know, so it's already happening. And I'm telling you, please, I'm just saying, I'm not trying to be an expert about anything. I'm just saying there's a lot of things lining up to make this like the perfect storm of hell for the next year. So I hope some of the tips that I pass on, you know, you can find helpful and uh, at least be able to provide some nutrition for yourself, some reliable re nutrition, stuff that you're in control of growing and putting in your body, uh, because I think it's going to be important. But uh, let me see. I had a couple more things on the list here. Uh, did I lose my place? Oh, lost ballots. Here's another thing. You know, people people who talked about the the election being stolen. Okay, well maybe maybe that is a stretch. Maybe the election wasn't actually stolen, but there was some shenanigans going on. And and any of us who talked about it, you know, a year and a half ago. Well, I guess after the election would have been 15 months ago, 16 months ago, 17 months ago, whatever it is, who cares? Uh, but anybody who talked about the possibility that, you know, that anybody had interfered with this election process, well, they were censored. They were, you know, that speech was not allowed on the Internet in the major social media platforms. So... You know, it was quieted down real quick. I guess what I was saying also about the social media platforms is, so a lot of people who aren't getting the information that there is going to be shortages, that there's no fertilizer, not enough fertilizer being shipped into this country for the major growers in this country to get their crops in the ground and properly, well, properly fertilize them, which is a little bit of a conundrum there because, there's no nutrients left in the soil, so we got to artificially, you know, pump up the nutrients in the soil so the crops can grow. But that's how the world is fed, and uh, that fertilizer isn't abundantly available. So, you know, and it's planting time. Like, there's no immediate solution right now for to solve that problem. So there's going to be crops in the ground that aren't going to produce nearly as well as they did last year or as they did in the years past, because there's no fertilizer to get them to produce. It could be really ugly. Now, luckily, 
if you have a small home garden, you really don't rely on fertilizers to, you know, to maximize your crop production. Well, I hope you don't, um, because there's other ways to do it. There's more organic ways to do that. By the way, I'm going to take a little side here. I get uh, I get email from the Old Farmers Almanac, and anybody who any of you who know about the Old Farmers Almanac, the truth is, like the Old Farmers Almanac is is um, is right left less than 50% of the time when it comes to predicting what kind of year, like weather year, it's gonna it's gonna be. Doesn't matter because the because the Old Farmers Almanac is actually a pleasure to read. <laughs> it's actually a little bit entertaining. But one of the links that they had in the digital version this week, uh, it had a link to um, somebody who said one hour vegetable gardens. And I thought to myself right off the bat, I was like, nope, there's no way. There's no way this is going to work. So, I went to read the article anyway because I thought, hey, if you can plant a vegetable garden in one hour, I want to pass it on to my listeners so that they can get a vegetable garden going in one hour, right? So let me just tell you the first part of this vegetable garden that you're going to do in one hour. It says, build a raised bed. (laughs) I think this is to be done before the clock starts ticking on the one-hour vegetable garden. Because unless you have some dirt hanging around and some wood or whatever kind of retainer you're going to use for your walls to make a raised bed, it's going to take you a while. And if you're making that raised bed very big at all, yeah, it's going to take more than an hour to just put the raised bed together. But basically, stuff I've talked about before, especially during this time of year when I uh, kind of encourage people to get, you know, start growing something, uh, it's kind of the same thing as I had talked about. Uh, I didn't specifically mention a raised bed because, like, you know, I try and keep it simple dirt's on the ground, and yeah, I know, uh, I'm 64, it's hard to bend over <laughs> and get back up sometimes, but, but you know, instead of raising the dirt up, I, I just, you know, get down on the ground and do, do the work, you know, weed or harvest or whatever, but, um, so, but, but basically all the other stuff was the same after after the building of the raised bed, it was kind of like, okay, you want to plant these certain vegetables like carrots and radishes and beans and uh, squash and, you know, stuff that's simple, like simple and has a pretty high success rate. Because when, you, when you're encouraging people to start growing food, you don't want them to be disappointed, honestly. Like you want it to be a successful uh exercise and and that can be tough because weather conditions you know uh, critters that get into your garden uh, yeah it can be tough it could I mean you know for some years we didn't even put a put a deer fence up around our garden and I'm not kidding your yield goes way down when the deer want to get in there and eat so uh so anyway, um, you know, you want to give people stuff that they're going to be able to plant and harvest and enjoy. And uh, this this one-hour garden does that. I can post a link to it in the show notes. Uh, I just thought it was funny because I knew when I saw a one-hour vegetable garden that it just wasn't going to be a one-hour vegetable garden. Let's see. So anyway, that was kind of a short list of things that, um, well, that we've been talking about for two years that I think we understood the the error in the science. It's basically the religion of science that ruled the pandemic 
years, let's say. It wasn't actual science. It wasn't actual science with actual data. But now, as I said about a year ago, now you're going to start seeing the actual data. Because people in positions to be able to study those numbers are studying those numbers. They're collecting that data. They're reviewing that data. Hell, the CDC has even come out and said that they, well, for children, um, they removed 24% of the deaths that were attributed to COVID because, because it was wrong. Well, so if they admittedly take 24% off, you can imagine that number is much higher because they're still trying to cover their ass. And by the way, that's another thing that, you know, if you're into the political world, I hope you know that you're just being played right now by everybody. The whole stopping of the pandemic, mask mandates, and vaccine push, and it's only been stopped because it's time to start voting again soon. We got to run campaigns, man, and we don't want to have we don't want to have a bunch of negative press that we have to answer questions about. No, we want to come out and say how we stopped all those mandates. Although you notice a lot of those laws haven't been removed, those rules haven't been removed. As a matter of fact, I I had a story today that came from the. Uh, uh, Academy of General Dentistry, which is, you know, um, what do they call that? Uh, organized Dentistry Club. I don't belong to it because I don't belong. I don't believe in organized dentistry because generally they believe in stuff I don't believe in. Like they believe in fluoride. I don't believe in fluoride. Uh, will I say that fluoride? Um, I'm not going to say I don't agree that fluoride strengthens your enamel because there's some science behind that. I don't believe you should be putting fluoride in your body. That's my thing. I don't think people should be forcing fluoride on anybody. I don't think as a practitioner that I should ever be forcing fluoride on anybody, so I don't. But, I mean, that's just one of those things. So why would I belong to an uh, organized uh, group that believes in that kind of stuff. Because when they go to lobby on behalf of dentists, they're lobbying for stuff I don't believe in. But anyway, so they sent out a, they sent out their little weekly or whatever. Uh, I don't know. Actually, I think I get something from either the ADA or AGD every single day. Uh, and I ignore most of it. But this really caught my attention. I'm going to tell you, well, you're going to understand why right away. So this is what the uh, title of the story was. Is most, <laughs> kind of funny too, most dentists, um, most dentists and dental offices still, still require masks for patients. And I just, I just, I hope everybody knows that, like, the federal government still has this mask mandate in place for healthcare facilities. So it's not like the dentists have any choice, really, uh, you know, unless they want to pay big OSHA fines or whatever. But um, it was just kind of funny that they actually came out with this story as if anybody had a choice in the matter, because dental offices don't. Matter of fact, this was kind of crazy. There's this one little, you know, I live in a very small town and we have a, uh, like a general store and it's got a pharmacy and I had to pick up some medication like last week or something. Was it last week? I don't know. Yeah, in the last week I had to go pick up some medication and I went in there and I noticed on the door it said mask required. And I was like, oh, that's kind of funny because this is just a store, you know. But sure enough, because the pharmacy is in there, you got to wear a mask. Like, 
I don't think they really care. I don't think they're going to throw anybody out because, like I said, this little town is like, uh, you know, we're living the country. Nobody really gives a crap about the mask mandates or whatever. So, anyway, but I thought it was kind of crazy that, you know, they would put out such a story that, you know, there was actually implied there was some kind of freedom. <laughs> involved in the whole mask thing in the dental office. Drink time. Everybody, drink up. Oh. So good. So, yeah, I think that's it for the list of stuff. So I wanted to talk about something I think is kind of fun. I'm going to start off by telling a story. So, um, about a week ago, so my dental office is right, like there's a little tiny, there's a two-lane road between my dental office and a river. Well, a river is kind of a stretch. Let's call it a creek. And when the weather's nice or if it's not raining too hard and if it's not freezing cold, I'll go across the street and stand and kind of check out the river. Well, last week I was kind of standing out there looking at the river and I was thinking, man, it'd be cool if we had some pygmy hippopotami over there. (laughs) Why? I don't know. I have no idea why I started thinking it'd be a cool idea to have pygmy hippopotami in our little creek. But it just like has that kind of look like, you know, like if it was a little bit bigger, like full-size hippopotamus would be cool, but, you know, it's kind of smaller, but it's just like the right environment. And then, and then I was thinking, okay, that's really ridiculous. We can't have hippopotami. So my family and I started, I told them the story because I said, you know, this is really bizarre that I would even be thinking this. But I was thinking this. So... Then we started talking about what we actually should put in that river. (laughs) And we came to the conclusion after much lively debate that we should put capybara in there. No, capybara is a South American rodent. I think it's the largest rodent in the world or something. But they're pretty gigantic. I think they're like 50 pounds or maybe more. I mean, they're... They're a, they're a big rodent. They're like a no-joke rodent. But this is what we were thinking, because, because capybaras, um, like people in South America, eat capybaras, you know? Like, I don't know if there's a bajillion of them, but they're a rodent. You would think they would multiply pretty well. And, you know, with the shortages that are coming, if you had some readily available meat locally so you didn't have to travel real far to get them like this could really you know benefit the environment and benefit people in the local area that you know we could just have a breeding population a capybara here and people would be free to go down and harvest them kind of like nutria like nutria is a pretty big rodent but it's I mean, it'd probably feed a family. I guess you'd maybe have to get a couple of them. I don't even know if they're any good. I think they eat weeds, so they can't be that bad. (coughs) Oh, excuse me. Suck some saliva in my windpipe. That'll do it. Anyway, so we were thinking about, you know, putting capybara in. (laughs) Thanks. Thanks, Rob. I would, but I'm not. Anyway, so capybara would be a good idea. And here was my plan. Because I know that, you know, I could probably get somebody who was heading this way anyway to just bring me a few capybaras. I could pay them. I could kind of finance their, well, their, 
I could help offset their cost of travel from Capybara land to, you know, here. And I mean, how much more trouble would it be to, you know, just bring a couple Capybaras along with you? Since you're making the trip anyway, you could just like bring them on up. And maybe for the first year or two, we'll kind of, you know, manage the whole breeding idea and just get some going and kind of release them in certain areas where, you know, they have a good chance of uh, <laughs> kind of naturally getting going themselves. And then, you know, <laughs> and then... And then, uh, you know, in like a year or so, you would have, you know, full-grown capybara that people could eat. And, you know, we could make some recipes and get a little web page going about how to cook your capybara. And it, so, okay, my point of that whole story is, this is kind of funny. It's kind of interesting that we have such great wildlife in the world. I was watching another program this week because the title kind of caught my attention. But I can't really remember what the title is to tell you. Damn it. But uh, it was about butterflies. And I was like, oh, this, like, number one, the little screenshot was appealing. Like, had all different colored butterflies on it. And number two, the title kind of caught my attention because it was like, I think it was something like this, but don't quote me. I think it was sex, lies, and butterflies. And I was like, hey, i got to see what that's about. So I, I started watching the program kind of half-heartedly because I was doing some other stuff. I think it was during this weekend when I was doing all this, you know, you know the whole garden thing. And when I would come back, I would, I would, I would hit the unpause button and watch a little more of it and then when I left I'd hit the pause button and you know it'd be there when I came back but one fascinating story I did see was you know some researchers studying butterflies and studying bats and this one certain bat that eats butterflies and moths in whatever country it was well they actually found and isolated a moth or butterfly that makes jamming signals for the bat sonar. So in other words, you know, butterflies out flying around, bat comes out looking for a good meal. He's banging away his sonar, you know, trying to find an insect, and he's then the butterfly like hears or feels the sonar and starts banging a jamming signal so the bat can't find them. Is that genius or what? I think it's genius. And it made me start thinking because I saw a story, which I will kind of get to at the end of all of this, the reason why we're going down this road today. So, I have, in my lifetime, been lucky, lucky enough to experience a lot of different things. You know, I say in my intro, you know, Forrest Gump-like events have led me to where I am. And I'm not kidding about that. I know I've told this part of this story before, and I'll get to it in a bit, but, you know, I've been in different places in the United States. Uh, I was in the Coast Guard. I was in the National Guard. I was in the Public Health Service. I got to travel around a lot. And I didn't, you know, I didn't gather any moths anywhere I went, man. I was on the move. If I wasn't working, I was out seeing whatever, whatever uh, countryside I was near. The only thing I do kind of regret and mainly it was a time thing, is when I was in uh, I was in Miami, Florida for five months because we got hit and ruined by Hurricane Andrew. 
And I never made it down to Key West in that five months. And then I left there, and I've never been back. And I really kind of regret that I didn't make the trip down to Key West in the five months before. But, I mean, you never know. Like, you don't move to a place and think, well, I'm going to be gone in five months because a hurricane's going to wipe me out. Um, but anyway, I do kind of regret that. But in my travels, uh, I've always been pretty much an outdoorsman, so I always wanted to see what the local wildlife was like and kind of study what kind of things, you know, have happened with uh, wildlife in our country, especially wildlife that, you know, was decimated, like the buffalo. You know, look at how... When settlers came to America, when we started the expansion west, we just decimated certain species of animals on this continent. And I mean, buffalo was one, but one that I want to talk about today is the uh, wolf, the gray wolf. Uh, I don't even know if it was necessarily the gray wolf. It might have been the gray wolves and the timber wolves, uh, but basically... There was even a bounty at one time on wolves in this country. Like, uh, you know, it was like th these animals have got to go. Even the earliest settlers made some comment about how these pesky wolves were, you know, just constantly a problem. And they made some comments at the time that there was no way that these animals would ever be eradicated because they were like everywhere. Well, <laughs> surprisingly enough, don't underestimate the ability of mankind to destroy and completely eradicate a species um, from anywhere. Because I think if we put it to mind, we certainly can do it. So, anyway, for, who knows, centuries, millennia, who knows how long wolves and natives, uh, Native Americans um, coexisted in North America, but it had to have been a long time. I mean, wolves were literally thriving in North America, especially the part that we now call the United States. They actually hunted buffalo. And if you remember, I don't know if all of you, I'm, I'm sure, you know, it's just my life. I, I got to experience a lot of stuff. So for a time period back in the late 80s and uh, through the 90s, there was a lot of talk about how big the buffalo herd had gotten in Yellowstone and that they wanted, they talked about, you know, needing some more uh, control of that herd. And at the time, I seem to remember that like brucellosis was a problem, and that and that uh, that's a disease that buffalo get that can be transmitted to cattle. And there was a lot of cattle ranchers around Yellowstone, and they were concerned because when the buffalo would wander outside of Yellowstone National Park, um, which they could do because it's not really fenced, I guess not everywhere anyway, so they could just wander off the, the uh, you know, park, park lands into areas where, you know, cattle ranchers had their cattle grazing on other lands. And then, you know, if that cattle got exposed to brucellosis, I guess it would kill them or make them very sick, and it would degrade the meat, and maybe the ranchers couldn't sell the meat, you know, and lost a lot of money. So there was like this big conversation for years, maybe a decade or two, about how they were going to manage the buffalo herd in Yellowstone National Park. Well, one of the solutions that people, <laughs> actually it was kind of a cool coalition, a coalition of people who got together to discuss you know, how they could manage this buffalo herd for maybe, I don't know, the first, uh, I don't know, let's just put a number on it, 50, 60, 70 years, the National Park Service wanted to maintain the buffalo herd at 1,000 buffalo. I don't know why, but they picked that number, and they would literally count the buffalo every year, and if it was 
much over a thousand, they would call animals to bring the number down to a thousand, around a thousand. Well, at some point, they decided that uh, they were just going to let that population self-regulate. That the that they that they were going to allow the buffalo and the natural predators in the area to come to an equilibrium. Well, what happened was the buffalo, like, didn't play that game very well because there was one specific predator that was missing that actually did a really good job of keeping buffalo herds in check, and that was the wolf. So, you know, of course, wanting to bring back a native population of wolves, certain groups kind of started thinking, okay, you know, well, here's something we could do. Let's bring in, let's bring in a certain number of wolves, and they should keep that buffalo herd in check. And, you know, after years of planning, you know, how that thing goes, it's like, oh, God, one meeting after another and constant kind of figuring out regulations and bickering among themselves. They finally came to an agreement that they were going to reintroduce wolves into, uh, wolves into Yellowstone. I wanted to tell you a couple a couple asides about this. So when the wolf population was decimated from the United States, it was gone, like literally from the northern border with Canada to the southern border with Mexico, we had basically eliminated every single wolf in the country, except for one little population that was on the Canadian border in Wisconsin. So I think they took some of those wolves and I know they introduced some different genetics and I don't mean GMO kind of geneticized them, but actually brought in a different kind of wolf and introduced their genes into this wolf pack so it wouldn't so it'd have a little more diversity, I guess, a little more ability to survive. Also, there's a very interesting story about this island in uh, Michigan called uh, Isle Royale. And what's interesting about this story, Isle, Isle Royale, is that at one time when Lake, uh, Lake Michigan froze solid, these wolves from Canada walked across the ice, I don't know, 22 miles, 18, whatever, however many miles it was, a long way. They walked across this ice, and they landed upon Isle Royale, which actually had this gigantic population of moose on it. And wolves just happened to love moose, so the wolves kind of set up home right there on Isle Royale. What happened over time is that that ice bridge quit forming at one point. You know, and probably wolves and people were like, oh, that's kind of strange. We didn't get the ice bridge this year. Well, eventually it turned into a regular thing. You know, man-made global warming, if you believe that stuff or just climate change, like routine, rhythmic climate change, the bridge quit forming, and the wolf population was stuck on this island. And what had happened in the past, like before the bridge quit forming, is once in a while, a wolf would travel to Isle Royale from wherever, in search of food, in search of new territory, in search of mates, in search of whatever. And so some new genetics, genetics would be um, introduced into that population of wolves, and it kept it healthy for a long time. When the ice bridge quit forming, then uh, 
the wolf population, the genetics were so, it, the animal was so inbred, it actually started developing uh, bone disease that they found in multiple skeletons, wolf skeletons, on the island over a long period of time. And the last article I read, I think it was 10 or 20 years old, they were thinking about, thinking about, introducing some other wolf genetics into that herd. But, but the discussion was this. Well, it wasn't a natural, um, it wasn't a natural pack of wolves. It wasn't a natural part of the development of this island. So if we do start interfering with that situation now, are we going to continue to have to, I said interfering, you get my drift, are we going to have to continue interfering to keep the wolf population healthy, to keep the moose population healthy, and to keep this balsam tree population healthy? Because there's kind of a balance there, because wolf, uh, moose love balsam trees, and apparently there's a ton of balsam trees on this island. Therefore, the moose population. And maybe that's what attracted wolves to... You know, maybe they caught the scent of balsa trees from 20 miles away and thought, hey, we know what likes to eat balsa trees, balsam trees, so we're going to travel over there and eat us some moose. I don't know if that's the case or not. But that's an interesting story about an isolated population of wolves that is, I think may still be alive. Or it may not, because there wasn't very many left when they were going to start. I mean, there was like eight wolves left on that island when they were going to start doing something about it. And like I said, I think that was back in 2014 that I read that story from. So who knows? It'd be it'd be interesting to look up later. Um, but anyway, so now the... Uh, I guess everybody involved, uh, who knows, the National Park Service and the Wolf Conserv Conservatory and who knows, uh, fish and game, uh, state fish and game officers and departments from all over the country have kind of understood that, you know, we were going to have a native population of wolves. Well, um, the problem with that is today that we still have and, and actually, I want to say this first. I love a balanced population of wildlife. I don't think there's anything better than when wildlife kind of figures itself out and just lives like it should live. Usually when we get involved, when man gets involved in managing wildlife situations, we usually don't, don't do the greatest job. Now, there are some entities that do a really good job. Um, if you ever want to entertain yourself with a little bit of like information and facts to compare, just go look at the, uh, the uh, I don't know, National Turkey Foundation or Wild Turkey Foundation. And look what they did with the wild turkeys in the United States and how they brought wild turkeys to this massive population it is now and compare that to what the environmentalists have done with the American condor. And you'll see how, how when people have a desire to actually bring animals back into like the way of life as they once existed, like wild turkeys were a big part of settling America. They're, you know, uh, they were hunted forever. They were near extinction also, just like the condor, California condor. And, uh, you know, this, this group got together and said, hey, we're going to bring the turkeys back so that we have turkeys to hunt and we have turkeys to feed our families and we have turkeys to carry on the tradition of this country. And on the other hand, you have people who took the American condor and, you know, kind of coddled it, didn't really have, 
still haven't done a great job. I mean, if you compare the number of wild turkeys in this country to the number of California condors, which you can probably, you know, count on your hands and feet, there's a big difference in the way those two birds were, you know, brought back from extinction. And there's reasons for it. You know, there's reasons for it. If you get people, like, actually involved in the process so that they know that there's going to be some good in the end, like good for them and good for the animals, I think it works out really good. So right now there's this, like, balance going on. Wolves are starting to make a tremendous comeback in this country. Hell, we've had wolves in Oregon for probably 10 years now. Um, They actually tracked one wolf that went from the northeast corner of the state, traveled all the way down the Cascades to, I think, like Klamath Falls. That's damn near the entire state that wolf traveled. It was radio collared, so they knew right where he was. Um. So they're doing a really good job. So here's the current problem that we're seeing in the Pacific Northwest is, you know, people people who have that heart for wildlife only because they just don't like seeing animals die. They're also the people who don't understand how brutal the world is in the wild. That animals die all the time in the wild. You can't stop it. It's Hakuta Matata, baby. But anyway, so you have people who don't want wolves killed, you know, for whatever reason. It could be religious. It could be, it could be, you know, just environmental. It could be that they just care for animals in general. They could think that the wolf is a majestic animal. Um, there's a lot of reasons why people don't want wolves to die, but there's this there's this constant battle between wolves and cattle ranchers because cattle ranchers lose money when they lose a calf or a number of calves. And trust me, if you go looking for stories, you're going to see that cattle ranchers lose multiple calves in a night to a pack of wolves. The wolves don't even kill and eat all the calves. They kill a bunch of calves and eat one or two or however many. They don't eat all that they kill, uh, at least on that same night. But anyway, so the cattle ranchers lose, lose cattle to wolves. So the problem is, and I see I'm getting short on time. So the problem is, you know, cattle ranchers want to continue to make money. People want cattle ranchers to continue to produce cattle. If they didn't, there wouldn't be a demand for it, but there's a demand for it because people buy up all the beef that's in for sale in the stores. So people want cattle ranchers to be successful. Cattle ranchers want themselves to be successful. People who want the wolves to be successful, they don't want the wolves killed just for no reason at all or just because they decided to eat a calf. But the problem is, when you make uh, domestic cattle available versus wild buffalo that are running, you know, the Great Plains, um, it's much easier to take down a domestic calf than it is a wild buffalo who not only is the wild buffalo calf going to be stronger, but its mom is probably going to try and keep it from being killed also. So, you, you know, whereas domestic cows, I mean, they might put up a little bit of a fight, but they're big, fat domestic cows. They're not really built for, you know, defending much of anything. So anyway, just with a minute left, I'm going to go over just a tiny bit. So uh, Washington State has decided that they are going to put more restrictions on the cattle ranchers in the state of Washington. In other words, they're going to demand that cattle ranchers in Washington do more to protect their herds Otherwise, if they report wolf uh, predation on their herd, the whoever it is, fish and game or whoever is not going to come out and shoot the coyotes, I mean wolves, they're not going to come out and take care of the wolves because the ranchers didn't do everything they could to prevent wolf kills. And I just think that's so crazy because they're just going to increase and increase and increase the cost 
of cattle ranchers protecting their beef and they're just going to allow the wolf to run rampant. Now, what I really wanted to get to through all of this is some irony because, you know, I'm always looking to point out irony. The crazy thing is the environmentalists now want to eliminate beef production in the United States, actually throughout the world. So what do you think is going to happen with that wolf population when and if they get rid of all of the beef cattle? You know, it's just another one of those things that when you look at it <laughs> and you see that, you know, that they're basically killing their own program because they don't think it all the way through, it doesn't make a lot of sense. But anyway, thank you for joining me tonight. Uh, remember to catch me Saturday at 9 p.m. Eastern. I'm here Wednesday and Saturday on reallibertymedia.com. I look forward to seeing you all again next time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Redneck Dentist Podcast. Please show your support for the podcast. This podcast is not on the biggest platforms, but it is on the best free speech platform. Until next time, remember, all bleeding eventually stops.